Hello and welcome to a special 2011 review edition of The Politics Show. I'm Luke Jones. 2011 has been a massive year for news and today in one hour we're going to be discussing the most talked about stories in the last 12 months. Joining me to do so is Joanna Scanlon who wrote and starred in the award-winning BBC4 series Getting On for which she and her co-writers won an RTS award for best comedy writing. She also starred as Terry in the BAFTA award-winning series The Thick of It. Also joining me is Sam Leith, a columnist for the London Evening Standard, The Spectator, The Wall Street Journal Europe and Prospect. His new book, You Talking To Me, is available from all respectable bookshops and Amazon. Hello and welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Right, without further delay, here is our first story. Last year saw a massive scoop come to light that included celebrities, journalists, the courts, but no one could talk about it. <laughs> Mr Speaker... Um, with about 75,000 people having named Ryan Giggs on Twitter, it's obviously impractical to imprison them all. And with reports that Giles Coran also faces imprisonment... <laughs> Order! Let me just say to the Honourable Gentleman, I know that he's already done it, but occasions such as this... Order! ...are occasions for raising the issues of principle involved, not seeking to flout for whatever purpose. John Hemming there, who used parliamentary privilege to name Ryan Giggs as one of the holders of a super injunction. Um, Sam, one of the problems with this was that Twitter was talking about all these things, and yet on radio, on television, on newspapers, nothing, completely silent. Nothing until I think it was the Scottish Herald that brought it. Yeah, I think this Mm. is a prime instance of the way in which the law is always about sort of five steps behind the technology, and that's only getting worse. I mean, it's not completely without precedent that this sort of thing happens because what used to be the great thing was you'd, you had a story you couldn't publish but you could report it being published in another jurisdiction so occasionally something would you know, a story that was of great interest to the British tabs would mysteriously turn up in Australia or would be published in, I think Scotland sometimes also was used. So that being because the court said that the British press couldn't Yes, and then you could, it, you could say oh it's could. public domain now so we, can, so we can do it I mean the Twitter super injunction thing has become, you know, that writ much, 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 much larger. Um, and, you know, of course there's a point at which it seems to me we're, we're going to have to find a way of of making the law catch up. But, because what, but what, what do you think is going to happen in terms of um, are all these people going to be arrested or is it just a bit stupid to even sort of try? I don't me? think people are going to be arrested, no. I think, I think um, there may possibly be some you know, somebody made an object of, but I doubt it. I think it's more a question of looking at how the law is going to reconfigure. I mean, I happened to meet um, somebody, you know, sitting next to me having a cup of tea about a year ago, and she turned out to be a solicitor who was practising this new area of law, which is where libel meets technology meets a whole number of other issues that in the past haven't been connected at all. And I mm. think that that's, that's really what's going to have to, 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 to find its way. But I think also what seems to it's a very muddy area for me because on the one hand you're looking at celebrities lives which frankly i'm not hugely in favor of their privacy being invaded nor am i that interested in reading about their sex mm. lives but surely with someone like um ryan giggs one of the thing things was um people were saying that because he's captain of england because he's this sort of symbolic figure we should know whether he's sleeping with his wife's sister purest, and like I don't that. know whether you can use the word bollocks on the radio mm. but I mean the idea that footballers should be kind of moral role models um, either in theory or in practice is completely absurd you don't you know, 
you know, if you're very good at kicking a football, um, you know, you, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to live your private life in a certain way any more than if you're very good at kind of laying bricks or you know, anything else. Mm. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, de facto, kids look up to Ryan Giggs, mm. you know, because they want to be a good footballer like him. But the idea that they don't, you know, all run away with the idea that the way to be cool like Ryan Giggs is to take out super injunctions. Um, Mm. You know, and, but and, and Andrew Moore fell foul of this, didn't he? Yes. So it's it falls. It's both sides of the of the, uh, you know, the, the, the whole situation. Mm. I, I, it, I, what what unfortunately I think that masks is that underneath it there is some corporate and other kinds of. Well, um, there was the the trafficura 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 hashtag. Yes, which absolutely. I think it's really interesting that we've got a situation where you could start by saying, "Yes, isn't it great that you know a company." which sought to use the law to, you know, essentially suppress reporting of things that were discreditable to its reputation is the kind mm. of polite way of putting it, I think. Mm. And we all think that's great. You know, Twitter can get around this because, of course, using an, an injunction to prevent the reporting after that is like using a kind of a, a rifle on a swarm of gnats. But the trouble is you can't then, having established this principle, you know, control where the swarm of gnats is going to mm. go next. Mm. And so... You know, the lie can be halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. You get intrusive reporting. You get, you know, Twitter jokes. You know, bad taste Twitter jokes. People are reported to be dead or horrible mm. things mm. go around. And there really, I think, isn't a way to police them. I mean, if one good thing comes out of the Ryan Giggs thing, it might be that, you know, perhaps Giles Corrin will go to jail. <laughs> but, <you know>. but <laughs> one good thing that did come out of it was, and we've got a clip here, is my favourite edition ever of The Andrew Marr Show. <laughs> And so, to the review of the Sunday papers, which, as you would expect, are dominated um, by me, lies, misinformation and deceit uh, in the Sunday Telegraph. A beautiful photograph there, one of the official ones released. Uh, a different picture there on the Mail on Sunday. Unhappy, shattered, demoralised. News the world. Why has it got so dirty, it says, um, and Scotland on Sunday. Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> so you had that horrible situation where he was... Cause did it, I think it broke on something like a Friday or a mm. Saturday, and surely because he was the one who initiated it, you'd think, hang on a second, I'm going to be reviewing the Sunday papers in a few days' time. Yes. Um, but it is pop will eat itself, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, I, there's something about that that's really ridiculous. I mean, I mean, we've all been talking for a long time about Westminster Village sort of incestuous behaviour, but this, when, when the, the leader of... When the presenter of the programme is the news, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. it's so, not interesting. There was the instance remember, when um, Angus Dayton on was prevent, oh, presenting. Was, you know, have I got news? And he for lasted you? for another three episodes or something. Didn't he, he lasted for another three episodes, but there'd been a sort of. I mean, you know, I think he and Andrew Moore would both have looked back on that thing. I acted like an ass, but mm. he, at the time, you know, was very sensitive about it, very prickly about it, and he got furious because. You know, Ian Hislop and Paul Merton, and I know they had this conversation with him, so, you know, we can't do anything during it. And on the day, they pulled up their T-shirts, and they had the front page of the News of the World on their T-shirts um, for the recording, and Angus didn't think it was funny at all. But, you know, as Ian Hislop said, afterwards, you know, that's the only, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah, I think. absolutely, yeah. you know. absolutely. Well, our next story, this year saw £85 billion wiped off the FTSE 100. Um, as the economy coughed and spluttered its way through the year. Growth forecasts were revised down and our relationship with the EU got worse and worse, accumulating in David Cameron's pulling out of a pact in December's summit. Much of Europe now appears to be heading into a recession 
caused by a chronic lack of confidence in the ability of countries to deal with their debts. Britain's economy shrank in the last three months of 2010, shocking experts in the city and industry. Latest figures show a contraction of 0.5%, raising new fears about the recovery. Growth flatlining down this year, next year and the year after. Unemployment rising. Well over £100 billion more borrowing than the Chancellor planned a year ago. Add everything together and you get Britain's national output, GDP. For most of 2010 it was getting bigger, but in the last three months the recovery stalled. The ONS says the economy shrank by 0.5% in the last quarter. Without the bad weather, it would have been flat, with growth of 0%. Sam, was it ever going to get better this year, honestly? Well, I'm not an economist, um, and you know they say that if you have, you know, you want 13 opinions, put 12 economists in a room. Um, I, you know, I, I don't even qualify really quite to have one of those. It seems to me very obvious that, um, you know, on a sort of really basic level, if you've got you know, enormous debts that you're spending a huge amount of money servicing and you're not making any new money. Um, things aren't magically going to get better, but I guess John Maynard Keynes would tell me different. <laughs> no doubt you'll have an awful number of colleagues, you know, studying economics who will be able to, you know, write in and say what an idiot I am, but, um, <laughs> but please let them because they'll probably be right. John, you can probably count, you can tell me. <laughs> you see, this is what I can't do. Um, I find the whole economic story almost impenetrable. I mean, except at a, on a human level. I can experience it, for sure. And I think... It's all these things like quantitative easing and things like that, all those little buzz phrases that you kind of, everyone kind of goes, oh, no, not more quantitative easing. Oh, that was terrible. What is it? I don't know. That's well, printing it, money, isn't it? I think. Yeah. It goes hand in hand, doesn't it, with the way in which the finance in general, um, as a, as a money-making process has become extremely arcane and the people within it don't understand it which is why we got into the whole problem in the first place that you know you had people in banks who were authorizing things that they didn't understand and I mean that goes back to Nick Leeson but it's still extremely um, impenetrable and on a, on a sort of human level all one can feel and I think some of the Americans have, have, have protested about this the, the, the big striker in, in November of this year is the same thing is that um, a sort of you know the genocide of the middle class through the you know w the respectable working folk being pinched by the way in which that public services are having to be cut and it has a much harsher yeah. e element as well for for people who perhaps don't have a job at all and it's a horrible sort of um political thing in that with lots of other policies there are clear cut that's bad that's good this will end up terrible whereas with economics anyone even um experts they have on programs talking about these kind of things even they can't for sure know what, what that they're saying is going to turn out well as opposed to bad you know if we cut too deep will it all that kind of stuff Sam? yes i mean it is it is you know a, a system that behaves i think hopefully in a sort of slightly chaotic way um and i think i mean one of the things that's, that one of the heroes who emerged for if you like the you know relative outsider you know to the to the field I mean, so through the um credit crunch Warren Buffett, the American investor, has seemed to everybody like a sort of sudden sort of beacon of good sense because he's always said, you know, he describes himself as a value investor. He'll only invest in stocks that he understands, mm. and that stood him in very good stead. He had that lovely, that lovely saying. He said, "It's only when the tide goes out that you can see who's been swimming without any trunks on." <laughs> um, and he, he also 
published a fantastic editorial or op-ed for the New York Times in which he said, enough with the easing off taxes for the super rich. I am super rich. I pay less tax than most of my lower rank employees mm. and I think it's a disgrace. And you're kind of good on you. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's, the real, that's the nub of it, isn't it? And that's where a lot of the anger comes from is the fact that the super rich are, I mean, there are more of them and they have more money than was the case 20 years ago. And, you know, uh, um, Alvin Hall is a, is a friend of mine and he, he was talking about a concept that he terms the frictionless rich. Um, and these these are the people. This, he was explaining why Concord hasn't been brought back. It's because people who can afford Concord no longer want to be on a plane with somebody they don't know. Yeah. They've got their own planes, and if they want to go skiing, they close Courchevel and just take the whole thing for themselves for the day. You know that there is there is now a kind of flagrant huge amount of wealth amongst a very small amount of people, which is quite un. You know, it's quite hidden. It's, mm. it's quite buried. Um, yeah. And at the same time, middle class life is, you know, in certainly in terms of mortgage. I mean, we've all been very lucky that the interest rate uh, for our, you know, in terms of our mortgage repayments has remained low. But you know, underneath it, there's a huge amount of fear. I think that what what the am yeah. I going to do when that happens? You mm. know. Yeah. Well, so we've got to leave that one there. And our next story is either one of the best or the most annoying protests to ever occupy London. These were the Occupy London protests. Below thick walls of Portland stone, flimsy shelters huddle, a scruffy challenge to the towering orthodoxy of the city. The biting winter wind has not dented the commitment of the protesters. Well, clearly everyone has a right to peaceful protest in this country, but when it looks like they're starting to set up camp that's going to cause all kinds of chaos for the days and possibly even weeks to come, it's not particularly helpful, particularly not when their message is absurdly simplistic. People are exceptionally dedicated. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Dedicated, but can you really change the world? Of course. History will show that people power, large people-led movements, have caused history to change. These are, of course, the um, Occupy protesters outside St Paul's Cathedral. Um, have you both? Have you both been there? Have you both seen them? No, I haven't. Have you not? No, it's, it's become something say, of an have, attraction. I was going to say, have you been? <laughs> mm, twice, sort of twice. I've had my photo taken with the Occupied Times, mm-hmm. which they print there, and all these things have a little library going. They have their own shop where you can. Is that like protest tourism? Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're, they're doing that bit for the economy, then clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, possibly. Um, what do you think? It's a year. It's been a year, hasn't it, of popular uprisings, and and this is the Western world's version mm. of it. Um, Which Occupy is being the word of the year. I read it uh, on New Year's Day in one of the newspapers. But it's quite one of the things that they did on the news. A lot of people talking on the news about this was they were, they were saying when the um, Corporation of London were trying to get these tents removed, they were saying, "Why is it that in protesters in this country they suppress, yet they fly all the way over to Libya to um, to liberate them?" And you kind of think, mm, "Slightly different, slightly different cause." Yeah, I don't think it's completely comparable. Um, I, th- I, I, f- I have very mixed kind of feelings about it because, on the one hand, you know, for goodness' sake, protest does seem to be. You know, it does raise awareness. I mean, it's not as if we're not all quite keenly aware of the economic situation, the economic disparities. Um, but you know, it is a, it's a legitimate way to actually say that people are. You know, it's a, it's a way of expressing a frustration. Um, you know, I I sort of do have some sympathy for the view that after a point, you know, what's what's it going to take to get you to 
take your tents off and go home. Because surely this is going to end up like um, a bit of a Parliament Square where mm. it's going to mm. be there for... I can't, I can't even remember where Parliament mm. Square was without those because not only do they have mm. their camp, they have the big fences going to make sure they don't get onto the proper That's Parliament right. Square. You're, t- you're too young to remember the, <laughs> the old days when it, you could walk there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. But I, I think it's... I mean, there are definite um, grievances which are legitimately being discussed and brought to attention through the Occupy movement. O- Occupy with a big O um, movement, you know, started in Wall Street, spread through America, the rest of the world, Western world. Um, but it is, it, it's, uh, it's really a, a new way of marketing your protest because a lot of the old, you know, when you used to get out your banner and walk down from. Uh, Trafalgar Square to Kennington or the other way um, people used to take notice now that a lot of those protests happen without any attention given to them at all it seems and, and the Occupy thing came with a global brand already exactly. attached well that's to one it. of the things exactly. that sort of it's the branding of protesting isn't it yeah and the international quality of it seems to be kind of very fitting to the international quality of what it's what it says it were against though that's kind of slightly incoherent but I think one, one of the something quite nice about it in this country is it came down to this sort of the row about it actually was pretty pretty tame in English mm. you know mm. it was like well, look you know being a bit scruffy here and like here's a canon or a prelate from St Paul's Cathedral who's, who's on your side and somebody else is not and there's a sort of botched attempt to evict them and then recognition that actually that's not the way to go about it by the cathedral authorities and the you know various politicians making kind of views one way or another in New York you know, there were heads being broken. There were really, really mm. aggressive and mm. unpleasant policing. You know, and I, I think in a way it kind of actually redounded to the credit of the way that we treat protest. Mm. That, you know, it has mm. remained largely a kind of comic, come peaceful, come. You know, as you say, it's a kind of they, they've got their shot, they've got their, you know, there's a newspaper, um, and that it's still characterised that way. You know, people will either tut tut or cheer. As they go past, mm. but, it, but they aren't being hosed down with water cannons yeah, I mean, and attacked by dogs. Footage you know. of uh, student, students, I think, in California on their Occupy protest, which at Berkeley, I'm not quite sure where it was, but anyway, um, with some really horrific pepper spraying, which is just as you know, as if it's a game. I mean, it's not far off this urination story that's going on at the moment about. Um, mm. which it's as if as if we're living in some kind of computer game where you can just get yeah. piss yeah. on something or whatever. It, Do you remember that heckler? Really Al, I think it was an Al Gore event, a heckler who was caught on YouTube saying, don't tase me, bro, and was tased half yeah. to death by this kind of campus cop. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, glad we're over here. <laughs> exactly, yes. yeah. Yes. Well, a bit more civilised. Well, 2011 saw the deaths of many great people who will be dearly missed. I apologise in advance for the um, heart-wrenching nature of this next clip um, here are a few of them who died in 2011 death of a man who literally changed the way we live our lives every day Steve Jobs the visionary founder and leader of Apple Computer has died, died at, the at the age of 56 he'd been ill for several years and had been treated for pancreatic cancer he was the co-founder, of course, of the technology giant Apple, but stepped down as chief executive in August because of health problems. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything 
All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Breaking news. Uh, we've not had it confirmed by the police, but we believe it, uh, it's uh, coming from the Press Association that uh, the singer Amy Winehouse has been found dead at her flat this afternoon. She was just 27. And so many people blogging and tweeting throughout the day today about an almost eerie coincidence. So many young music stars lost and so many lost when they too were 27. With the spectacular highs came desperate lows. And tonight she adds her name to a tragic list of rock legends, all dead at 27. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and like so many, she shared their destructive addiction to drink and drugs. Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. Her stunning beauty and notorious intrigue turned the tide of civilization. Everything she did was larger than life. She was the most beautiful child star. She was the most exquisite adult leading lady. Her career spanned 50 movies, two Oscars, eight marriages, two to the same man, scandalous headlines, and courageous activism. She lived her life her way, and Terry, she didn't give a damn what anybody else thought about it. The list also includes the writer Christopher Hitchens, the actor Pete Postlethwaite, the golfer Sebi Ballesteros, the director Ken Russell, and of course, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-il, Osama bin Laden, and Colonel Gaddafi. Well, continuing the theme of death, October this year saw the demise and killing of Colonel Gaddafi, the li leader of Libya. This was a defining moment in a long line of revolutions and removals of despots, dubbed the Arab Spring. But today is a day of huge celebration and now the plan is to push further on up this road and head on into the capital. Uh, all I know is uh, that Gaddafi is dead and they are bringing the dead body to Mr. Well, all they could say was Tripoli, Tripoli, we're heading to Tripoli, we're going to take Tripoli tonight. The election comes nine months after President Ben Ali was forced from power by mass protests across the country. This in turn inspired revolts in Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Syria. Nine months after President Ben Ali was driven from power, another historic milepost in Tunisia's history, the first free democratic elections in this country after the revolution. And for most of these people, the first time they will have cast such a vote in their entire lives. Started by a vegetable seller in Tunisia in December 2010, the Arab Spring brought about regime change in Tunisia, Egypt, in Libya and mass protests in many more. Um, one of the problems with the Libya example, um, and we'll come on to it a bit later again with Osama bin Laden, is the fact that he was killed um, and not captured. In terms of um, what do you think about what could have happened had he gone on trial? Would that have been a better option? Um, for whom? I mean, very good question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to satisfy the world's sense of order and justice or, or to actually bring about more change in in the right direction. I mean certainly some of the countries 
Egypt, for example, having gone through quite a huge revolution quite early in the year, struggling towards the end of the year with how that is going to how that new democracy is ever going to establish itself in in terms that the original protesters hoped for. So it's difficult to know whether it's sort of that thing of a lot of people now saying it sort of was too easy, perhaps sort of you know the fact he sort of went on the run for a bit, did the whole defiant I'll never leave, died. That's the end of it. But then equally, do you want another? long drawn out kind of thing um which probably would never come to justice per se well i think uh, i mean isn't uh tawakul Karman is from the yemen is trying to bring salah into uh, uh, the icc court in the hague at the moment for for crimes in the yemen and uh, i suppose the process of of intention brings a lot of what actually happened to the fore and and countries like syria at the moment where there's a news blackout or whatever you don't actually know what has been going on and that was true for libya for many many years so in that sense more information may be more valuable but yes. it, it it's just the well, the clarity of change is um muddied it's not that also your kind of dream situation is that the that the sort of opposition effectively you know whoever takes over the country you know is has ownership of the process and that something like a kind of truth and reconciliation commission takes place and that's the kind of shooting the moon but in practice much more often what you'll get is something like the situation in Iraq where say Saddam Hussein was tried under a very shaky kind of interim code of justice because of course mm. you know mm. the laws that were in place were his laws were Baathist laws there weren't quite new ones the process that you know, it was very important for America to be seen to be giving them ownership of the process because they didn't want to be seen as sort of liberal interventionists. But then what essentially happened was he was kind of lynched. Mm. Um, and bizarrely enough, the process by which Saddam Hussein was you know, put to death actually succeeded in making Saddam Hussein look dignified by comparison. Um, mm. You know, or you get, do you say, as some, some people, well, it has to go to the ICC, which... You know, I, I don't believe that. Um, in fact, I'd be fairly sure that Libya isn't a signatory to the ICC. Mm, mm. So that would be certainly, you know, there'd be a very good case as a Libyan national for saying, well, you know, where the hell is the international community self-described? Get off coming in, mm. intervening in our country. Yes, thank you, you're helping us. But then you decide that you're simply going to abstract the dictator who we've been yearning to get our hands on for a very long time and take him and subject him to say the legally extremely murky fabulously expensive completely ineffective process through which Slobodan Milosevic was prosecuted mm. you know in, mm. but I, then I equally you forget the situation where because um, a lot of I think the BBC is currently under some sort of inquiry to do with fair reporting during the Arab Spring mm. that side where for a long time we've all sort of been in a consensus that these revolutionaries are on the right side they are the correct side but mm. then when you see them dragging him out of a gutter I think that someone mm. kind of assaulted him in some kind of way he was then shot and sort of beaten up you then that kind of again like you say muddies the water as in oh mm. are these the goodies well this mm. is this is sort of the you know massively over i mean people always accuse the neocons of being very cynical but actually the neocons were massively over optimistic because they thought that every country in the world was stuffed with you know western liberal constitutionalists just waiting to get their hands on the mm. levers of power and they turned out not to be 100 percent right about that yeah, I mean, the Arab Spring takes you back in a way to, to 1989 and, and the changes in Eastern Europe and Soviet um, collapse. And you, you look at what it was that people thought they were going to get as a result of what they thought of as freedom. And, you know, if the, the actual process of 
democracy is complicated and it may not be appropriate in every country. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a principle, but then it, the practice is something else. And um, this is going to be a long, it, you know, it might have started in 19, whatever, where are we now? Sorry, 2011, uh, but it will go on for many years yeah. uh, on revealing itself. And I think there is there is a sort of real politic argument that says that actually, you know, a lot of people were saved a lot of ideological and practical trouble by Saddam, but not Saddam, by, by Gaddafi, mm. you know, happening to cop a bullet in the head. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just made, it just makes yeah. life all it's, round a lot yeah, easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Well, the summer of 2011 saw one of the largest riots to sweep through the country in decades. Hundreds of thousands of pounds were stolen from branches of Curry's, JJB Sports and Foot Locker, with only stores such as Waterstone, Waterstones rising from the ashes unscathed. These were the August riots. Nearly 50 people have been arrested after a night of rioting in North London. Eight police officers in hospital after major disturbances at Tottenham in North London. Trouble erupted after a protest at the fatal shooting of a man by police which turned violent. Extraordinary scenes in London tonight as fires, riots and looting spread across large parts of the capital. A massive blaze is burning in Croydon in South London after a furniture store was set alight. Let me be absolutely clear. Those responsible for this violence and looting will be made to face the consequences of their actions. The riots, initially in protest against the shooting by police of Mark Duggan, spread across London and then up to Birmingham, Manchester and Nottingham, destroying shops and burning down buildings. Um, were these riots anywhere near either of you? Because I know you both live in London. Did mm. it happen close to you? Yeah, I'm very close to Brixton. And was it um, as scary well, uh, sort of the sort of news made out? Uh, by chance, I, I didn't end up in it. Um, I just happened to take a left turn think oh, I'll go that way tonight as I would absolutely have been in it I was inches away and I, there were, I was surrounded by lots and lots of uh, police sirens but I kept thinking well you know that there are often a lot of police sirens so I was a bit um, <laughs> naive I suppose I, I think I mean for me the, the London riots you know and this is not to take away the very serious side of it to the loss of six lives and a number of very serious injuries 20 million pounds worth of um, property damage but there was something absolutely ebullient in it a sort of schools out quality to sort of three days of just go for it that I found rather exciting and I know exciting that exciting I'm appalling. not <laughs> uh, and appalling and appalling but I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not suggesting there was something um, you know positive in it at all but there was an energy about it which was very infectious at that moment and I can quite see I mean I was a very rebellious child and teenager and had I been on my Blackberry you know and I got that message I would have been right down there taking the trainers and the bags of rice I mean it was it was there was some sense in which I think it was the other half of it was that the teachers were away you know and uh, that there they you were suddenly realize the teachers actually aren't as scary as you think they are and there are a lot more of you than them that's right. When when it turns, when uh, you know, which one knows from school, you know that, that sometimes the mood can change. Yeah, the supply teacher comes in, and you know, in the first ten minutes, you know what sort of lesson it's going to be. Exactly. But in that way, when you said um, it was that sort of schools out quality, in that way, is it not um, the as deeply entrenched in social unrest and things as um, 
I think it was the Guardian and some and in conjunction with the LSE was it that did a poll or some study into why the riots happened. They said it was because of sort of hatred of the police, social unrest, and things like that. Was it not just Sam a case of everyone realizing that the police weren't going to do anything? I think it was. I don't think the, that most of the writing would be something you'd describe as kind of consciously ideological. I don't. I, you know, I think to describe the writing as a whole as protest isn't, isn't, I think, the right way of thinking of it. I mean, it seems to me, it's interesting that it went through social media. I mean, I think it's almost worth thinking about in terms of memes. You know, writing is kind of a contagious idea. I mean, the, what you've got a situation, I mean, you know, the, the country, because we're in civilised sort of Western boxes, is basically policed by consent, not by pure force. You know, there aren't enough police around if everybody suddenly decided to, to start writing, mm. there'd be absolutely no hope of mm. of having the institutional, you know, repressive state apparatus on hand to, to actually repress it. So, you know, it's, I think it was like a kind of schoolyard craze in a way. You know, the, the excitement, the adrenaline. You're like, look, the window's down from JD Sports. Here's some stuff. And somebody put it um, quite well, I think, that, that writing, you know, was the continuation of shopping by other means, which is not actually completely to go against the thesis that you know there are deep social causes and they're to do with you know the idea that consumerism and that the acquisition of cool stuff is is what you know is your entitlement or your your requirement to seem you know you're you're the big guy if you've got all the good stuff mm-hmm. and suddenly a lot of people who have sold this message 24/7 who have an opportunity to get some of the stuff that they haven't previously had any opportunity to get that money and suddenly whoosh and I think there was it, a was, it was an expression of collective unconscious uh, act being acted out and I think the, what that is 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 a crisis in authority in the notion of, in the principle of authority and the practice of authority but how do you sort of um, counter that do you sort of bring in the water cannons and the rubber bullets or do you sort of go back down to the sort of the social level and try and deal with those problems how, how do you deal with that I'm, I'm so pleased that there were no water cannons and that there was yeah. no that there was no actual violence uh, on the police side. Or very, yeah, I mean, there probably was a, a small amount, but it was much less than than had actually been there at the student uh, protests yeah. earlier in the it year. It was pretty well policed, I think, wasn't yeah, it? I mean, it there was, was a lot of a lot of anger from the right that the police weren't going with water cannons, but actually, I think you know it was sort of allowed to damp down rather than you know violently suppressed, which could have had all sorts of. I mean, they said, didn't they, they're going to bring 16,000 police in tomorrow night, so you better just, you know, n- n- not go out on your midnight feast. I mean, it was sort of... And, and, and just the, I remember the s- my street was on lockdown, you know. It's sort of I went out at half past five to buy some toilet paper or something, and I was like, like ah, aha, it's the newspaper again, you know. Mm. <laughs> mm. I was coming down, because I originally come from Nottingham, and I was coming down on the train to do some... Because I wasn't at university, and I was coming down to do some work experience, and my mum was going, you're not going. You're not going. Mm. You're not going because all these mm. scenes of sort of things on fire and things like that. It did have a general sense of panic. Mm. Yeah. Could we also say in the writer's defence that there was a lot of sneering made about the fact that the only sh- shops that didn't get looted were bookshops? Mm. We could point out that actually the writers already had iPads, so they didn't need exactly. They were on the Kindle. It's exactly. stupid. They, 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 it wasn't yeah. paper the e-rioters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Paper-free riots. Well, May 2011 saw the death of the world's most wanted man, Osama bin Laden, who was found in a house in Pakistan next to a military compound. He was believed to have ordered the attacks on New York and Washington on September the 11th, 2001. This is the moment that President Obama announced his death. Good evening. 
Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory. Let us remember that we can do these things not just because of wealth or power, but because of who we are, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. May God bless the United States of America. Strong words, but one of the most memorable moments was the scenes of hundreds of thousands of people across America chanting and celebrating. One of the problems I had with this thing was was exactly that that final scene. I think if you remember on the news, you had people waving the American flag and things like that, and this sense that people were at the end of the day celebrating an assassination, a sort of a grisly murder of someone. Did you sort of see a problem with that? Well, you, you said the final scene, and I think that's right. It's, it's part of an American narrative in their history, and it didn't have... <sighs> The, the truth of the political and historical facts was less important than the narrative. Um, Obama doesn't seem to have come out of it as as heroically as Bush did initially uh, post 9-11. It, it's, it's highly fictionalised and I think that the triumphalism is revolting to me um, and the death was very undignified and unpleasant. Um, one of the strangest things that I read about it was that, you know, that in, in Osama bin Laden's will, he requested that his children did not join al-Qaeda and did not form part of the jihad. And I, I find that one of the most puzzling things about the death. as I say, not as I do, isn't it? My dad's like that <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was um, paltry. Mm. And do you think this, that event, is that the, a lot of people are saying, it's the end of the war on terror. It's the sort of big old book of this narrative slammed shut that's it story over I think that's I mean that, that's a sort of fantastically absurd idea to to posit but I mean that's part of the problem with the notion of a war on terror is that by definition it isn't it isn't an achievable objective I mean you know and, and when it started you know military people said well the thing is you know as as the army you know we can go in and knock stuff down and bash stuff up um, you know send us in kill person X fine we can do that defeat these troops but you know a war I mean, it's, it's a cliche now but but not enough attention was paid that a war on abstract noun isn't by definition winnable you're declaring war on a method of war I mean I think with Osama they did do as much as they possibly could and this time quite thoughtfully I mean you know the assassination you know the conspiracy theories will proliferate about that but the whole business of not parading the body of not you know burying it somewhere where it could become a place of pilgrimage, of trying as but well then, as they could to learn from the mistakes pushing it off a boat was sort mm. of a... Mm. Well, it's, tr- it's, it's very tricky, but I mean, I think, you know, when you're in that, the situation that they had inherited, you know, it's sort of the old joke about, you know, how do you get there? Well, I wouldn't start from here. Mm. You know, in that situation where he was the world's number one most wanted man, they, you know, they, they had him, they'd killed him, whether deliberately or by accident. You know, they worked very hard, I think, on trying to find a way of minimising the extent to which this could be presented as a martyrdom or as a 
grave injustice and I think they did a, I think they did attempt a proper Islamic burial for him um, though I'm not sure As what that the rules was, are about the sea. Yeah, that was what was reported. I mean, of course, you know, the information war is quite important in the war on terror. So, you know, we'll never probably know exactly what happened. I thought Obama did a pretty good job in being sober in that announcement. I mean, he, he had to throw a few bones to the God bless America crowd at the end. Mm. But, you know, the professorial Obama was on show there rather than the, mm. rather than the, the you know, high-flown one. I mean, God it, alone knows what we'd have heard if George Bush had been making that announcement exactly. it's hard because glad it, we didn't. to me it, it, it was a little bit lacklustre but as you say that that could be balanced by being seen as professorial and downbeat and somehow it didn't yet for me have the gravity there was gravity missed within that somehow that of of you know of, of what had actually happened um, both in terms of yes their story of 9-11 onwards and also in terms of this sort of rather extraordinary raid which had had been in their terms successful yeah I'm amazed that I mean I think it seemed to me really a huge story there that was I mean it kind of came out but not as strongly as it should if I was a Pakistani citizen and for that matter you know um, even with the drone attacks by what remit does the you know even with the, the is it even in the gift of my government even if they invite them in does a foreign power conduct military raids you know, under no sort of legal framework whatsoever, um, to kill people within the territories of, you know, my country. And I, and I know that I think there is strong feeling in Pakistan about the drone attacks and all the rest of it. Is that, you know, it's not even in the gift of the government to tell the Americans, oh, you can come and kill anyone you like. And mm. I think mm. that poses real problems of principle that, you know, the Obama administration hasn't really grappled with. And I think that might come back to bite them. Mm. Mm. Well. 2011 has been an eclectic year for television, if nothing else. Who would have guessed that this year was the year that X Factor ratings stumbled or the year that BBC Four's Danish import The Killing struck gold? Highlights included The X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, Strictly, Sherlock, Great British Bake Off, Return of Big Brother on Channel 5 and much, much more. What was, for both of you, televisual highlight of the year? Oh, oh yes. Um, well, um, actually, I'm going to say The Frozen Planet. Yes, I didn't um, mention that. I didn't mention Frozen Planet, but hmm. yes. I mean, I did hugely enjoy The Killing, and I've seen quite a lot of other uh, things that you mentioned and enjoyed them. But I thought Frozen Planet was absolutely magical and extraordinary. Um, and, you know, the, the access one had to an, a land that was hitherto just sort of seen from long lens mm-hmm. um, was really remarkable. And whether, you know the effect of it on raising questions for climate change you know I did feel there was a sort of agenda somewhere very gently being kind of manipulated and perhaps attempted to be hidden but you know there may well be some awareness that was raised through it but apart from anything else it was just absolutely beautiful and slightly upsetting that that's the kind of thing that only comes around every like they say, four years in the making for those kind of things. You know what I mean? It's kind of depressing. It's the same with when they say with Sherlock, oh, it takes us years to make these massive episodes. You're kind of going, mm, I'm not going to see it for a while now. Kind of thing. Mean, yeah, but hooray for state broadcasters as well. Mm. I think yeah, it's a really it, good argument. You know, you, when, you, when, when you do filmmaking, it does feel quite military. There's a sort of military element to it. And you think of these Navy SEALs going in and taking out Osama. But the way that these cameramen are functioning in the conditions that they are doing so to get these other shots is 
pretty similar, actually. I mean, these guys are complete heroes as far mm. as I'm concerned. I love that bit at the end when the, the last five or ten minutes when they tell you how they did it. I mean, that's just exactly. fabulous. Yes. Mm. You mentioned there just, Sam, um, hooray for state broadcasters. This, obviously, a lot of these things are from the BBC, not people like ITV. Sky recently have invested a lot in sort of... Um, they've done a few David Attenborough specials and things like that. But at the end of the day, it is the BBC that's kicking this stuff out. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I know there will be an awful lot of kind of free market loonies who who very, very strongly against the idea that, you know, and I, I can see their point of view that, that there should be, you know, a, t- a tax TV. It seems very Stalinist to have a kind of state broadcaster pay for out of tax. But it does produce things like that, that I think it would be very hard to imagine um, a commercial broadcaster taking a punt on. I mean, you'd think if they, mm. if they had, you know, if it, if, if it were possible it would have been done and the difference being sort of the BBC taking four years for something like Planet Earth or Frozen Planet but the thing that um, David Attenborough did for Christmas the thing about, uh, was called The Bachelor King about the penguin on South Georgia a 3D film for Sky that was shot that was done in sort of weeks you know what yeah. I mean that was mm. a very I don't want to discredit it it was a very sort of easier option whereas Frozen Planet was a much more um, the kind of thing you would get yeah. from a state broadcast. I mean, I think there's a you know there's definitely a, a sort of a range of things that a massive state-funded broadcaster can do better, and maybe can only do better than a uh, than a publicly funded than, than a private broadcaster. But but you know, natural history over four years is probably is probably one of the examples. Um, yeah, and it was great. Although the biggest hit of of the year probably Downton Abbey, and that is ITV. Mm. Um, yeah. So they, you know, the, there is, and, and I think probably I didn't mention couple, that either. There are loads of things now that I'm thinking of that I, I haven't well, a, mentioned. Well, a couple of years ago, I think if anybody would said you'd see something as kind of expensive as that on ITV, it, you would have thought, no, they're not going to put that kind of money in. But you know, with, when it when it can have the return, they will put the money in. Yeah, because mm. surely one of the things is. Um, selling this programme abroad Downton Abbey does phenomenally well in the States and places like that so does Frozen Planet so surely that's, that's a good that's the thing of the, of, the, of the export market but actually, a good side to it speaking of export markets I mean you mentioned The Killing which um, I'm now like the last person in the country to see it because I've just started watching it I haven't seen it at all and well, I won't tell you who did it well I don't know who did it yet but it, um, you know I've been gripped by that and that's Danish State TV um, and as we got you know got to sort of episode 12 my girlfriend turned to me and said do you know, I think there's a lot of bad acting in this, but we can't tell because because it's in Danish. And I think there may be some truth in that. <laughs> Good point. This, can I just mention one other programme that I thought was spectacularly... Yes. Uh, was, a, was groundbreaking, which was Our War, which was on BBC Two, I think, and it was, it was a three-part um, special it, going into Afghanistan, uh, soldiers in Afghanistan in, in three different units, taking the footage from their own cameras on their helmets mm. and editing and telling stories through that method. And Commissioned that was, for BBC Three, but then they moved it to BBC Two because I think because it was very popular. Oh, is that right? Mm. Yeah, it, it was quite... Uh, well, I'm, I'm actually shivering as I... My, the hairs on the back of my neck are now up in the memory of what I felt being in the middle of war, which I, I think you get this, the, the closest experience you could possibly have and not in a good way. So, Joanna, Frozen Planet slash our war Sam highlight well so far it's the killing because it's the it's I think it's the only thing this year I've watched <laughs> <laughs> well forget your mortgage payments and your chronic health conditions in April 2011 the world saw the most magical thing to ever happen ever it's going to be a day to remember a day to celebrate and enjoy 
for all of us. Outside the palace there are still crowds and inside Prince William and Princess Catherine, the new Duke and Duchess of Cambridge are dancing the night away. Well, there's plenty of excitement and speculation and the two big questions. Will the sun shine and just what will that dress be like? Here outside Buckingham Palace and Meredith, you have waited a long time <laughs> since November when this engagement was announced. You've been looking forward to this day. Congratulations. Finally, finally here. Finally here. Two hours to go before the wedding. They're taking part in this great celebration. And you can see they're expecting some 20,000 people to show up here today at Trafalgar Square. They have activities plenty here. Everything from uh, they're going to be making hats here. There's going to be wedding cakes served, champagne, and, of course, the traditional pims. It wouldn't be a party here without pims. And Lots of shouts from the crowd here. And that's the reward. The first public kiss as husband and wife. It doesn't really work on radio, that kind of moment, does it? Just people <laughs> cheering. <laughs> um, you can hear a big slurping noise. <laughs> exactly. Um, if you didn't think it was as big an event as it was, I have some stats here from the day itself. Um, there were nine million unique page views on the BBC's Royal Wedding page. 24.5 million people in the UK watched it on television. It was the most Google thing in 2011. And there were 55 arrests on the day. Oh, what were they for, I wonder? Yeah. Anyway, lunging, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we mentioned um, BBC State Broadcaster, that very good, surely the Royal Wedding was a a beautifully shot thing and something that is, and it's a bit of a cliche to say it, but it's sort of like a good symbol. It's a good for our brand, a British brand. Yeah, that's the, that I guess is the thing. Um, though I don't know, was the footage, I don't know, technically you might know, Jen, was the footage actually... BBC or was it pooled or what? I mean, those great. I think the BBC produced it, and then I think they then they then sold feeds. Maybe, but there was, people, yeah. um, it was it was actually t as a technical feature television making. It was fantastic. I love those sort of swooping shots down from the top of the abbey where you of can see the, the sort bells of bells and things like mm. that. But yeah. particularly kind of from above, um, mm. you know, the only scene from which you couldn't see Pippa Middleton's rear end, um, you'd get the um, you know the great cross shaped, mm. you know, the nave and the aisle and. The nave and the apse, and the, um, it, you know, it was it was a, it was a good impressive show. But that, I mean, this whole business of the sort of the monarchy as a brand of Britain and this great thing was kind of sort of mid Victorian invention, really. I mean, it's you know the monarchy was a real low point in the mid Victorian. There was a huge concerted PR campaign to get everyone feeling patriotic, and and it kind of worked and has, has more or less hung on ever since. And surely that that set the example for next year sort of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Olympics and that kind of thing it is a good kind of PR thing to make people forget about the fact they're broke absolutely I yes mean, as long as somebody's rich <laughs> like the American dream it's a, 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 guilt, a very extremely guilty pleasure of mine television wise that you've just been talking about this year has been made in Chelsea and I think there's an element that this is, is in the same guilty pleasure kind of quality that it's about it's a very very upmarket soap opera that you can invest to whatever degree or repel from in whatever degree you fancy um i was gripped on the day absolutely gripped sat with my husband on the sofa holding hands staring um scrutinizing the dress etc etc i mean you you it's very hard to resist exactly same when i was looking when i was researching for this and getting clips and things i spent nearly an hour 
sort of just watching the, the BBC's Royal Wedding page, which is still up, looking through all the videos and going, oh my God, was that the hotel? And was that the hotel? Mm. all it's those like, different things. It's sort of gripping in actually, a way. one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that it does, you know, people say the, the monarchy is this very, very old-fashioned thing, an anachronism, but actually it kind of points up that before the culture of celebrity that we all deplore so much, you know, they got there first, actually. The, Absolutely. You know, um, you know the royals. The royals were first, and and Katie Price came second. Queen Elizabeth the first on when she yeah. you know, defined herself as an icon in her her portrait, and you know ever since they've been defining themselves imagistically. It is. It's all about image, isn't it? I'm yeah. Not really sure that I know what Kate Middleton's voice is. Was really it spectacular like. kingship? Or yeah, mm. and, and you know in the, in the in the Diana chapter of this uh, soap opera, the moment when she went on and, and did her interview with Martin Bashir. And we really heard her talk for the first time. Was was a, a shift, a change. You know, mm. a lot of it is about image, and that day was full of extremely memorable images. Of which the most is her royal hotness. Is it not? Who's not even a royal at all? Um, no, Pippa Middleton. Yeah. Um, so when her when her bottom got its own Twitter feed, um, <laughs> all right, enough. <laughs> During the sort of the build up to it and on the day itself, there were a lot of um, news items and talking about. Um, the Republican move, movement and sort of the move to a republic and surely do you think the royal wedding dispelled all of those um, fears that that kind of movement movement or does it still have legs? Uh, I think that some of the constitutional changes in Parliament that have been taking place over the last fifteen, well, ten years or so, have proved to be less. Um, valuable than people wanted them to be or thought they might be and I think that this is you republicanism is about the whole constitution the monarchy is a, as in one element of that but you can't take it you can't separate it from a much wider relationship with parliament the judiciary and so on and it is a it's a complex very complex subject and given what people feel about politicians the sort of handing over a presidential role to any one of them right now doesn't feel that attractive. Exactly. So it's, it's, it, mm. it is tricky. I think it seems... I mean, there are actually moves still being made. I mean, it's very interesting that some of the obvious injustices, such as the, you know, male primogeniture, um, with Her Majesty's approval, are being phased out. Also the act of succession that prevents Catholics, you know, which are sort of blatant, you know, admittedly they're kind of nominal anachronisms, but they are... You know, they're sort of standing injustices, as it were, on the on the statute books. Um, the disappearance of those is attractive, but I think the the point at which it'll change, if there is going to be decisive change, and I feel fairly sure there will be, is when Her Majesty departs this earth and hands over to Charles, or you know, <laughs> may by that stage be William, um, and then and certainly Andrew Marr's book, Andrew Marr had some sort of leaks or briefings on the quite detailed plans that Prince Charles is putting in place for his succession. And they some of the things that have been thought of are quite radical about a slimmed-down monarchy moving to Windsor. I mean, I'm sure that's probably not going to happen. But it's clear that he's taken on board that that's the point at which something can be achieved. You know, like, you don't... you If you're going to redecorate your house, you'll do it within the first two months of moving in. Mm. And mm. that's when something will really happen, I think. So do you think it's unfair then, that a lot of people are saying, oh, isn't it a shame that when the Queen does die, that it will go to Charles as opposed to, you know, the William and Kate. So in that sense... That's the point of Monica. I mean, you can't, you mm. can't take it as a pack. I mean, it's, if it was a democracy, 
as to who it goes to next, it wouldn't be a monarchy, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think you can treat it like X Factor. You either have it or you don't. Uh, and also, uh, I think, I think we have lived with the Queen for so long, 60 years this year, etc., etc. Um, when she dies, no matter which side of the fence you might be sat on, it will rock our world. It will, it will definitely, and there was intimations of that with Prince Philip's uh, heart problem at Christmas, mm. that we are going to find that quite a profound experience as a nation um, in terms of identity. And who knows what that might throw up. Um, I think the young royals are doing quite a good job of the, you know, the the kind of dude quality to them means that they they have a certain sort of accessibility, which certainly will speak to young people, and that may well carry them through. But I mean, Sam was talking about the kind of budget version of of the monarchy invented by Victoria, and even now, you know, our, our current the crown has very much less power than it did even then. So it's a it's a diminishing. It's a, it's a, you know it's a it's a tapering wedge. Yeah. Well, in 2011, a story broke which made some journalists want to jump up with joy, and others to curl up in a corner and cry. Please leave our next and final story after the beep. Saved message Tuesday 7:48 a.m. An extraordinary moment in British journalism. The news of the world is to close, victim of its own phone hacking scandal. Britain's best-selling newspaper, first published 168 years ago, will print its last edition this Sunday. The actor Hugh Grant is one of those calling for a full public inquiry into the phone hacking scandal. There was a very sinister relationship between the Metropolitan Police and News International. They were always having lunch with each other. Rebecca Wade herself has admitted that uh, money frequently changed hands. Well, I think uh, it's inevitable that she's gone. You know, she should really have resigned a week and a half ago. She's accepted responsibility for what went on at the company, but she still has to be held to account for what she knew. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. The Leveson Inquiry has now been set up to look into the practices of the press. Some of the notable appearances have included Hugh Grant, Paul McMullen, the McCanns and the Dowlers. Um, was it right initially that the news of the world should close? Uh, I don't think it was actually myself. Um, I think it was a, a, an attempt at managing the news story um, and it was sacrificial. Hmm. Um, I don't think that was the right answer. But there's a much wider context around newspapers. Um, and, in you know, maybe the news of the world wouldn't have lasted anyway uh, in the long run. Yeah. it's it, it, But it's a shame that it's sort of the... A lot of people... It was Britain's best-selling newspaper. And however much people might report the terrible things that went on at the end of the day, it is in some way bit of a tragedy if you see what I mean and sort of it's not that uh, this small section of the, of um, newspapers that were doing this because those stories now sort of the Sunday Times being involved and sort of other newspapers mm. so it seems it seems strange that they closed. I, th I thought my my it, the whole thing I mean I don't mean the phone hacking itself but actually the reporting of the phone hacking scandal seemed to me to, to show my profession in a really low light um, because for a very long time we all affected in the way that we reported it to believe that there was any plausibility in the one lone reporter defence, which had we been reporting on any other sector, you know, any other industry, we would have, you know, knowing what we knew, because we, you know, as journalists, it was, you know, the dogs in the street knew that this was going on. Um, there was the, the shafters, which are the kind of showbiz 
tabloid showbiz hacks unofficial kind of you know industry awards were, were sponsored by Vodafone and there was I think it was Vodafone and there was one year that they did suggest that we, could have, we should have one for the best phone hack you know and that, that was kind of kibosh they went oh Vodafone won't go for that um, mm. so I think it was, it was in Leveson that one of them I think it was the editor of the one of the sort of the Sun or something like that was um, the QC quoted back to him a thing where he said we should th- you know thank Vodafone for this award purely for the, yeah, sort of exactly. the stories coming from phone, mm. hack- phone mm. hacking so mm. it is so it was, widely it was a sort of widely known it was sort of open secret and the fact that it was reported in this well you know that, that all the other papers did affect in their reporting you know to, affected to believe the one lone reported defense seemed to me really shameful um and it actually isn't so much the phone hacking itself it seems to me that's that's you know bad though that is that's the, that's the big issue but the fact that the story took so long to get any sort of traction it took the guardian took nick davis's tireless you know reporting you know facing right into the wind all the way for this to actually finally become unignorable and take on the momentum it's taken because you had a situation where you know nobody worked on other newspapers wanted to report it because they were you know might have wanted to go and work on a news international newspaper nobody you know at all there was a sort of dog doesn't eat dog feeling um there were that celebrities didn't want to push it because they didn't want to make enemies of news international politicians didn't want to push it because they didn't want to make enemies in news international uh, there was some the metropolitan police didn't want to push it because they didn't want to make enemies in news international it seemed to me that, that was an object demonstration you know mm. if you needed it that whatever you re- your view of rupert murdoch's you know personal ethics or business ethics are um that too many people were scared of him whether he wanted them to be or not for you know democracy to function as well as it ought you know you just don't want to have one media party that or one media group that is that powerful but why was it though why was it so shocking i mean obviously we have the cases of the sort of the dowlers and things like that but why are people getting so worked up about people like hugh grant's phone being hacked um other sort of celebrities like that when it's sort of our want for that kind of reporting those kind of stories those kind of things that sort of has driven that has driven journalists to go for you know go right to the edges of the law to get those for us i mean it's difficult with with it seems to me there are two two types of people within showbiz if you like people who are talented in whatever field and become celebrities as a sort of byproduct really of of doing what they do whether that's you know Darcy Bustle being a very good ballerina or whether it's Hugh Grant who was successful as a as a good actor in in a few films and then there is the industry which uh, which is made up of people who are prepared initially just to tell tell their whole life stories or show the whole of their bodies or whatever it might be in order to have publicity to become famous to then become famous for being famous and it's quite confusing um you know it, it begs moral judgment in a way that's a bit uncomfortable um you know i think sienna miller is one of the probably most prominent uh, sort of she she defined something of it because there she is small and blonde and was being hounded the thing she said, by paparazzi. The only, dif- the only difference being that sort of uh, late at night being chased by 15 men, the only thing that made it legal was the fact they had cameras in their hands. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, as, a, as somebody who is, uh, you know, on the telly and uh, you know, p- p- 
potentially might have somebody if, I, I can't quite imagine the situation but say somebody did ever come and doorstep me I wouldn't like it and I, and part of me would want to say well sorry all I did was try to 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 you know try to do my job well you know mm. but then the I, line... I know that I, I know the other side of that but if you are in that position uh the fact that you have your private life it doesn't feel you know it isn't doesn't feel that it should be public property. I think it's a slightly shabby argument that says well you you know you've given an interview about your personal life and therefore anything we can find out about your personal life is fair game I mean there's a difference between you know somebody selling you something or giving you something and you stealing it from them um I mean you know the, mm -hmm. the terms on which celebrities conduct interviews with newspapers you know or by and large you know they're agreed by both sides um and that's not I mean I don't think that 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 oh you've asked for it now you've written a you know you've written a blank check I, I think that's a dishonest argument actually yeah, uh, yeah also I mean I, I think there is now although the news of the world might have closed there is many many more outlets for that material but online as well as uh, in printed form than they used to be when it was you know the news of the screws and there was very little else uh, those were the stories but now the god how many people are, 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 are photographed every day with bits of their body getting thinner or fatter or whatever you know yeah. it, it screws mm. I mean it's just mammoth and, and it you, is very debased and do you think that this sort of Leveson inquiry any sort of things that come after this is there a hope for any genuine change of that or will it just end or will this slowly peter out because it does seem that this is a massive section of the press going all the way from things like OK Magazine well, and rightly, Hello all the way you, to the sun as you rightly say you know, the, there is definitely an argument that, that effectively we're getting the papers we deserve. That there's a market for this, and that you can't really, you can't really sort of will that market away. Um, and I think, though it's a s sort of, you know, scary one. I think one of the best arguments made, actually, is Paul Dacre's, which is an instrumental argument about it, saying, yeah, perhaps it's not great that we should be prying into people's private lives, and that we should be, you know putting nasty pictures of long lens pictures of celebrities in their bikinis on a website and doing all the kind of things that that we good you know right thinking liberal folk deplore while secretly reading but he says unless you have a tabloid press that can sell sensation you won't have a tabloid press at all and you know, on the back of sensation you do serious journalism you do you know mm. you ca you hold politicians to account and that there's a sort of you know, spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. Think this is a necessary evil for a greater good. I mean, I, th I think it's a, an argument that's very problematic, but mm. in in practice, I think that's pretty much how it works. You know, tabloid newspapers would go out of business if they weren't able to it, it, pry into people's private lives. It feels hollow, though, doesn't it? In the in the in the light of what you were just talking about, it where where there's one media mogul who actually uh, has his own interests at heart. Uh, and therefore, the, there's a limited amount of serious investigative journalism, journalism that can happen with that, within that yeah. anyway. Although actually, a lot of the really good serious journalism that gets done is done by News International. I mean, the Sunday, you know, the Sunday Times and the Times do do a lot of really good investigative work. And, but and there's also a lot you know. that's outside of of his, sorry, his interests that that doesn't get covered at all. Yeah, you know, there, I think there are that's, other stories. But that's the argument always, isn't it? For Plurality in media ownership. I mean, that you would never really expect any media outlet to report in great detail on its own shortcomings. Mm, you know, mm, um, mm. just as you'd never expect a politician to pony up his expenses, frauds himself. You know, you need. Mm, so, yeah. 
Well, that's nearly all the time we have. Um, but just a few minutes just to ask both of you. Um, we've dealt with 2011. What are you looking forward to most in 2012? And don't say something boring like the Olympics. <laughs> I was going to say the end of the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> John, first. I'm looking Feel free to plug if you have any projects coming up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to the restoration of the Barbara Hepworth um, sculpture that was stolen from Dulwich Park in order probably for its metal to be uh, melted down uh, just before Christmas. I'm looking forward to the moment when somebody finds it somewhere and restores it back on its plinth. I mean, I, I think that it's the, the whole question of metal theft is becoming really quite dis- um, it's, it's destabilising and there's, there was a, a very beautiful sculpture that sat there since 1975 and it was stolen at, at Christmas um, and melted down uh, we assume uh, that's I, I, I want somebody to do something about that and also um, you said you're writing a new series of the third series of Getting On that's right yeah. and also the thick of it will be coming back soon at some yeah, point. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of my life, I mean, and, and what I hope we'll try and make some good television for people to enjoy. Um, yes, we have new series of Getting On and a new series of The Thick of It. Sam? Well, I too am looking forward to the restoration of Hetworth and also in a perverse way, just because it would be such an achievement, if metal thieves steal the Angel of the North, um, I would be, <laughs> I, I would be, you know, happy to see it go. Um, and in my own in my own professional life um, I'm looking forward to not doing any work while I'm watching the next series at the thick of it um, and very much hoping that when my two books come out in paperback this year the novel The Coincidence Engine and my non-fiction book about rhetoric you talking to me um, I'm very much hoping that people will buy them in huge huge quantities in the mistaken belief that they're by Stephen Fry <laughs> and Sam assures me that the latter of those two is the perfect accompaniment to any student studying you're talking to me. Any, yes, any student studying rhetoric, English literature or chemistry would benefit from that book. It makes you taller and better in bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is all we've got time for. A big thank you to my fantastic guests, Joanna Scanlon and Sam Leith. If you haven't seen Getting On or The Thick of It, box sets of each are out now, as is Sam Leith's new book, You Talking To Me. And as he said, both available in paperback this year. If you want to get in contact, you can go to our website, kcrradio.co.uk, or you can tweet me at LukeJones03. That's all from us here. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>